This guide was envisioned as a gift to New York City and the world. You may recognize some of the voices describing the building as well-known New Yorkers. Others you may have encountered in your daily lives. They are the people who make this city thrive. Who am I? What am I? I mean, what am I? Merrily Talkington. I am an actor. I am a creator. I am legally blind, and I love that. And I'm somebody that is endlessly curious about so much. I'm Karen Bergman. I'm a painter and museum educator, and I love listening and observing and love people deeply. I'm Chantel Wright. I'm a bishop, a music educator, a mom, and a champion for young people. And above all, I love all of humanity. I'm Jeremy Pope, son of a pastor and a bodybuilder, creator, artist, with my heart on my sleeve. My name is B.D. Wong. I'm a performer. And I'm also a writer and I'm a dad. I have one son and I live in New York City and I'm a proud New Yorker. Hi, this is Maggie Gyllenhaal. Hi, I'm Bobby Cannavale. I'm an actor by profession and I've been a New Yorker for exactly half my life. And I have three sons who were all born in New York City, not too far away from the Guggenheim. I am Azuri Jenkins. I'm a birth worker. I am a yoga teacher. I am a healer. I am a daughter, a sister, a friend, a confidant. I am a Black Indigenous woman from this landmass. I am a deep lover of the earth. This sensory-focused building tour is based on verbal description a technique that aims to deliver precise observation of the visual world. For more than a decade, the Guggenheim Mind's Eye program has provided verbal descriptions of collection artworks for visitors who are blind or have low vision. Conducted by arts and education professionals, Mind's Eye programs include verbal description, conversation, sensory experiences, and creative practice. Participants in Mind's Eye reviewed this building guide during its creation, and their input was an essential ingredient. We invite you to listen to verbal descriptions of collection artworks, which can be accessed through the Guggenheim's digital platforms or by participating in a Mind's Eye program. Speak with a staff member or visit our website, guggenheim.org slash mindseye, for more information. We hope that this guide will allow everyone to experience the Guggenheim Museum and delight in this icon of New York. Walking north along Fifth Avenue, we pass rectangular New York buildings with towers 10 stories high and taller. Traffic rushes by. Central Park is on our left. We may hear pedestrians talking or birds calling above us in the foliage. Crossing 87th Street, we glimpse a bright ivory-gray curving form ahead protruding from the rectilinear shapes around it. The trees and buildings partially obscure the view, but as we near 88th Street, the circular concrete building reveals itself in full magnificence. It's the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. The Guggenheim occupies the whole stretch of Fifth Avenue between 88th and 89th Street. 
We sense that the building belongs to this place. It's dug in, emerging from beneath the ground plane. It's an asymmetrical building. On the south side of the block is a large circular form, like an inverted four-layer tiered cake, each ring wider than the one below it. The base of each layer cuts in at a sharp angle, so the tiers seem to float with space between them. On the north side of the block is a smaller circular form, half the other's height. The structure gives the overall impression of an air traffic control center, distinguished by half-moon-shaped windows with dark mullions that span one level, a rectangular form sandwiched between that level and the building's top floor, circled with windows in the round. There's a sense that both circular forms are sitting on a deep hovering shelf as a second floor concrete wall wraps around them. We also see some vertical elements skewering the building together. The entire building is painted a light gray, though on a sunlit day it can appear bright white. The only exception is a frieze circling the top of the smaller building, which is a greenish tone made of copper. Moving closer, our sense of scale changes. The structure feels intimate and contained. It's set far back from the street and looks deceptively small tucked between the tall buildings around us. Yet the curves of the building reach out towards us, gently muscling the city grid to the side. Looking up, the bright facade bulges out towards Fifth Avenue. The round layers aren't entirely smooth. The skin of the paint reveals a diagonal grid in the concrete from underneath. Soft shadows emerge when the sun hits at certain angles. As we step towards the building, the sidewalk widens. Street vendors are parked along the way, and the aromas of hot dogs and falafel drift towards you. The sidewalk ends at knee-high walls, creating a buffer zone between the building and the street where deep planters embedded in the urban block make a landscaped garden and reveal a, a ramp to a side entrance below street level. Year-round, people perch along these walls, taking in the sun, enjoying a snack from a street vendor, or watching the passing parade of New Yorkers and visitors. Approaching the museum's main entrance, the walls funnel us into the shadow of the overhang. Entering the museum, we shuffle through a glass revolving door. There's a sudden ambience shift in sound and temperature as we emerge from the open outdoors into the low-ceiling vestibule. The whole space is small. The 7.5-foot ceilings are close, and the sound around us feels compressed. Moving through this small entrance, we're grounded and keenly aware of our human scale. Stepping forward... A raised texture is underfoot, almost like crossing a manhole. It's a large bronze medallion 
four feet wide, arcing along the circle circumference. Bold texts read, let every man exercise the art he knows. Aristophanes. In the center of the seal, geometric forms intersect above a relief image of the earth. And smaller text reads, this museum designed by Frank Lloyd Wright is the gift of Solomon R. Guggenheim. We feel the ridges of the medallion underneath us, but also may feel the slickness of the bronze gleaming from the polishing of many feet entering and exiting the museum. A few steps forward and the low hovering ceiling suddenly opens. There's an extreme shift in sound, light, and visual perspective field as an expansive space opens in front of us and above us. A wide, hollow cylinder with a continuous spiraling ramp climbing the walls, topped by a large skylight, or oculus, 96 feet above us. This is the Guggenheim's Rotunda. It visually resonates with a town plaza, with people milling about. It's surrounded by the quarter-mile concrete ramp in a widening six-floor spiral, coiling up to the skylight. The continuous ramp is punctuated by a column of bulging overlooks, like theater balconies perfectly stacked on each level, receding into the open space above. This is not such a tall structure, but it feels monumental with the expanse of light and space surrounding us. Entering the museum is about the experience of movement. The transition from the open outdoors to a tight indoor space to another expansive space. These compressions and expansions happen again and again, repeating in the space as scale shifts. Standing in the rotunda, we may immediately tip our heads back to bathe in the brightness of the skylight. The rotunda in front of us contains space, light, and sound on full display. We're drawn forward into the center of this cathedral of space, the iconic rotunda, the heart of the Guggenheim Museum. Nothing is static in the museum's rotunda. The curves always imply motion, spiraling, flowing with no resting point. This also translates into sound. At all times, we are aware of murmuring enveloping us, even the water in the rotunda's elliptical fountain merging with the general soundscape like another voice. At busy times of day, it may be surprising just how noisy the space is. 
waves of sound bouncing off the building's concrete plaster in terrazzo curves. When concerts happen in the rotunda, sound behaves in different ways. Amplified music can reverberate off the hard curves. Other times, sound gets sucked up into the void and seems to disappear. Non-amplified instruments like brass and string and choral voices often resonate organically. The Guggenheim has spaces similar to Grand Central's whispering arches, where the curved dome allows sound to travel a long way to a specific destination. On the second level of the ramp during busy periods, leaning towards the wall, voices are suddenly drowned out by a projection sound of the rushing fountain below, somehow traveling up the curving wall. When no one's in the space, the same thing happens much higher up, on the top level of the ramp, facing the rotunda's void below. You can hear the fountain murmuring up behind you. At other times, sound carries unpredictably, Sound bends with the curving walls. The conversation of strangers on a bench across the rotunda might loop to where you are near the admission desk, and it feels as if they're whispering right beside your ear. The curves and angles surprise. Depending on when you visit, where you are, and the people around you, you can hear everything or nothing. Someone drops a pen and you hear it four floors up. Oftentimes, sound disappears into a vacuum. It's impossible to train yourself to know how sound will carry. It's all based on your body and other bodies in this space and the ever-changing conditions around us. The hard surface also warps sound. Someone hiccuping on the ramps next to you sounds normal, but at a distance, a hiccup is distorted to a pronounced popping sound like wood knocking or inflated thundersticks at a sporting event. If you know what you're listening for, you can hear it, even when the museum is very busy. When the building is empty in the early morning or after closing to the public, it can seem truly silent. But even then, sounds from Fifth Ave murmur in, and the steps of one guard patrolling can echo through the space. At the base of the spiral ramp, a one-quarter-mile path unfolds in front of us in ever-widening loops. The ramp climbs steadily at around three degrees, creating a continuous gallery space around the rotunda. But the slope is inconsistent. At places, it nearly flattens, while elsewhere the angle is as steep as 5.5 degrees, slowing our pace as we hike up. On the top ramp of the museum, the spiral ends at a high, small overlook. Above, it's topped off with the lid of the skylight. Seeing the spiral turning up into the horizontal base of the skylight gives us a visual reminder of just how intense the three-degree slope is. We feel the energy of the spiral and its containment at this juncture. While the lower coils have ceilings around nine feet high, here, the ceiling opens to the skylight. Ascending the highest coil of the ramp, there's a great difference in ceiling height. It starts expansive and ends cramped, 
where the spiral's energy is restrained by the skylight. The floor not only rises at an incline, but it also tilts subtly towards the gallery walls. Everything about the floor's incline relates to the handmade quality of the space. You may notice pockmarks in the floor, evidence of anchoring sculptures during exhibitions. If sculptures were not anchored in this way, the vibrations of feet moving up the ramps would slowly shift the works, like glaciers. The first two levels of the ramp have straight vertical walls, but starting on level three, the wall leans back to an angle of about 105 degrees, like the slant of an artist's easel. This slight angling out is a noticeable, iconic element of the space. Because artworks are hung upright, they appear to be floating off the back wall with no evidence of the hidden structure that's holding them up. At the base of the gallery walls, another angled element is present. A sloping shelf runs from the floor to the gallery wall, keeping us at a distance from the back wall. We call this the apron. Even with all of these angles, the path from the waist-high walls to the floor to the apron to the gallery wall still appears continuous. Any of these odd angles may contribute to a feeling of being off-kilter. When the museum opened in 1959, some of the first visitors asked for medication for vertigo. Others to this day find themselves embraced by the curves and angles. Frank Lloyd Wright even wrote, the whole thing will either throw you off your guard entirely or be just about what you have been dreaming about. Your eyes play tricks on you in this space. Objects that appear to be misaligned then align themselves as you revolve around the space. As we move, our bodies adjust to all these angles around us. As you walk up the spiraling ramp, an ever-expanding space unfurls in front of you. This sense increases as we travel higher, as if the building is lifting us. At the lowest level, the ramp is a bit cramped, like the tight grid of New York's Soho neighborhood. As ramps widen, it feels more like a broad path the difference between Mott Street and Broadway or an alley in a boulevard. Even while sitting on one of the benches along the ramp, you might not feel grounded. On the bump outs, the balcony-like semicircles projecting into the rotunda, we feel we're suspended in the void. And we are. The bump-outs sit on the edge of a cantilever and are designed to be strong, but as light as possible, to minimize the weight extending out. If you tap or knock your hand low along the concrete wall near the bump-out, you can sense where it changes to a hollow feel. While they appear to be solid concrete, the bump-outs are structures coated in plaster. We get the sense of the immensity and the weight of the whole building, but here we have a clue to its surprising lightness. Even the solid, curved walls in the rotunda, the concrete barrier between the inside and outside, are at points only five inches thick, 
a long nail would poke straight through to the outside air. We're suspended in the museum in other ways. You may notice that there are no columns along the ramps. In fact, the ramps project out too. At regular intervals, they are intersected by vertical concrete walls called web walls, about eight inches thick. These run from the ground up to the oculus, supporting the spiral like a rib cage. There are 12, radiating at 30 degree intervals around the circular ramps. The ramps actually hang off these walls. On the lowest ramp, the web walls only extend toward you about a foot. As each coil of the ramp widens, they protrude more and more, dividing the space like citrus fruit membranes. By the top level of the ramp, the web walls feel less like protrusions and more like walls, separating a continuous coil of open, self-contained galleries. From bottom to top, the building is like a crescendo. The widening ramp and growing web walls increase the rhythmic pace as we travel up. The web walls lift each ramp and we feel this sense of levitating. Aware of all this suspension, you may feel the rotunda floor is the most stable place in the museum. But though we feel grounded on the flat floor, even here, we are still in suspension, cantilevered over another space. Immediately underneath us is a cavernous, carpeted theater. The concrete everywhere inside is painted and appears white, though really what we experience is brightness. Natural light floods the museum from the oculus. As you walk up the ramps, you may feel the heat of the light on the left side of your face as it pours from the oculus into the rotunda's void. You may be aware of how muted or how bright it feels on any single day. The sharpness, the brilliance, or how soft, hazy, and subtle the light can be. The quality of light can completely transform the feeling inside the museum. When the writer and poet Jorge Luis Borges visited the Guggenheim, when nearly blind, he said, Light was entering through a glass dome, they told me, and I perceived it over my head as if we weren't inside a building, but in the open air. Most of the time, the oculus has a cover on its exterior, like a snug cap, protecting the artwork from direct sunlight. When the cover is on, the light is filtered and diffused. On the top ramp, you can still feel it substantially brighter, like standing on a roof. During the rare times when the cover is off, Sunlight floods the whole space, immersing visitors in direct light. Throughout the day, the sunlight shifts along the ramps, tracking time like a sundial. At certain times, the inside edges of the parapet are washed in continual light. In the afternoon, we sense the blazing sun entering the large windows on the ground floor, looking out to Fifth Avenue and Central Park. 
Light is brought into the space in other ways. Continuous strips of window panes run along the middle coils of the ramp, called lay lights. They angle in from the exterior, like wedges, allowing light to illuminate the artworks and giving the impression on the exterior that the building layers hover apart. The light here is a bit bluish, mimicking the temperature of daylight, but it doesn't correlate to the time of day. As we study this, it's clear the consistent light comes from artificial bulbs. The light surrounding us changes through the seasons. In the summer, it's diffused and opaque, like being in a greenhouse. In winter, the late afternoon light angles in through the windows looking out to Fifth Avenue, casting long shadows across the rotunda floor. The reminder of the outdoors is constantly above us. When storm clouds gather, we sense darkening skies. We hear tapping rain above us. We're aware of how this architecture amplifies the space beyond it. There is an interplay between the small and intimate and the grand communal spaces within the building. The High Gallery, one of the first exhibition spaces off the ramp, is a double-height gallery approximately 20 feet tall, open and airy. It's an alcove that we must step up into, ascending three low stairs. This gallery has unusual proportions. It's a fraction of a large cube, like a triangular wedge, Looking back and up, we see a semicircle opening on the wall where people stand on a level above us, looking down into the gallery. Their presence on the ramp above us, framed by the semicircle window, makes it feel as if they might deliver a speech. Throughout the museum, overlooks like this reveal the interconnected nature of the building. Stepping back onto the ramps, we are again in a human-scale space. Ceilings about nine feet high hover above us for most of the ramp's coils. We have a sense of a comfortable environment in terms of sound and movement around us. As we continue up, there are alternate paths into other spaces off of the spiral. Behind the rotunda are the tower galleries. Rectangular spaces with flat floors and high ceilings with a measured, expansive feel. Tucked behind the large columns skewering through each floor, you'll find an entrance to these quiet galleries or an overlook to view the tall rooms from above. Stepping out of the rotunda into an adjacent side gallery, we're drawn into another low-ceiling gallery space. Some note that this space feels claustrophobic in contrast to the openness of the rotunda, while others feel stabilized in a comfortable scale with a level floor. Above are hemispherical skylights, like bubbles. Different forms shape the space. A tight, elliptical stairway sits in the center of the gallery, and columns within the gallery echo the elliptical form. One level up in the museum cafe, floor-to-ceiling windows look over the treetops of Central Park and also offer a closer view of the rotunda's exterior. These idiosyncratic spaces unfold as we deviate from the main path 
allowing us to experience the building anew. Throughout the museum, you can choose your own path. We might step from the bright rotunda into the tight elevator. Unlike most elevators, it is a semicircle, like we're inside half a cylinder. We feel compressed, not only by the shape of the walls, but also by the color, a deep, dark red, which stands in stark contrast to the rest of the building's bright tones. While the building is predominantly circular, there are moments of great geometric shift. Tucked behind the rotunda's elevator is a staircase where the dominant shape is the triangle. Looking up or down, the stairwell's center creates a void in a perfect equilateral triangle through five floors. We can feel where the walls meet at 60-degree angles. The shape of the stairway is echoed in the three-sided light fixtures embedded in the ceiling. These triangular lights also appear above us every few paces along the rotunda's lower ramps. Throughout the museum, sight lines confirm or confuse our sense of scale. Looking up from the rotunda floor, the narrowing void creates a forced perspective, making the oculus appear higher than it is. The size of people on the ramps disturbs the forced perspective. Sometimes all it takes is a child's head peeking over the ramp wall to break the illusion. As we ascend the ramp, walls near hip height, always on our left, separate us from the open void of the rotunda. If you place your hand on the wall, it's surprisingly low. It's three or four inches thick and rounded. It's not perfectly smooth, but feels very comfortable in our hands. Running our hands over it, we find it's pitted and uneven like an orange peel or a cantaloupe due to the many layers of paint used to touch up the walls to keep them bright. The gallery walls also feel like an orange peel or unglazed terracotta. We perceive other things through our skin as we move through the building. At times we feel temperature changes. The top of the ramp may seem much cooler with its higher ceilings or hotter with the bright sunlight above. There's a clear sense of air moving through the space. As you walk past certain places, you can hear the mechanical input of ducts right above the parapet walls in the ceiling that slopes down towards us. A huge motor on the roof circulates clean, filtered air, ventilating the rotunda 24-7, like the lungs of the building. The highest overlook may be the most tactile spot in the whole space. It's a notch at the top of the spiral. And at the peak of the museum, we might feel a gravitational pull to the center or a teetering feeling, a slight cant toward the immense void below. Our impulse is to grab onto the parapet and cling to the low, thin walls to anchor ourselves. Surrounded by immersive light and space around us, all these tactile inputs together might evoke an emotion in your gut. As the pinnacle of the spiral's trajectory, this space invites a pause to embrace a flood of sensory feelings. We may find ourselves drawn to the edge, peeking over, stepping back, and peeking again, playing with the architecture.
Experiencing the architecture is as much about moving through space as it is about the space itself. The continuous flow of a spiraling ramp invites a way of experiencing the artwork sequentially. We feel ourselves moving in circles at the pace that the architecture sets for us. The artwork installed in the rotunda can be seen linearly, but also in the round from afar, from above, and from below. We encounter it as we approach it and can revisit it from the other side of the ramp. There's a juxtaposition between the focused view in front of us as we face the gallery walls and how a simple turn of our heads opens to an expansive view. At any moment, we can be lost in the artwork while our periphery absorbs sound, brightness, and movement all around us. Looking across the rotunda's void, we can even see artwork on different levels simultaneously. Standing at the base of each level of the ramp, it's as if we're on a mezzanine or soaking it all in on an observation deck. At a distance, we can trace the path we've already taken. It's not like commuting or errand running. There's a poetic sense of being able to mark our steps. The spiral is a timeline, tracing our own presence visually and spatially. We can return as we came, keeping our hand on the same low wall almost the entire quarter mile. As we loop around the space, we repeatedly arrive at an anchoring point. Two large columns containing the bathrooms protrude into the ramps, forming vertical spines through each layer. It slows our movement, watching people nearing the columns. You may notice there's a kind of pause like passing through a doorway before beginning the loop again. It's a junction where we can choose to break from the spiral to enter a gallery tucked off to the side. We funnel through this trafficked area on each level containing the bathroom columns, elevator, planter, drinking fountain, staircase and benches. This transition provides familiarity, a natural pause, and a rest before continuing up the spiral. This repeating feature offers breadcrumb trails of the energy of the spiral. At the base, our curving ascent is interrupted by the columns. Their barriers, we must wind around their perimeters. Higher up, you're aware of how the ramp is widened. Full pathways open on either side of the east bathroom column. While the coils of the ramp change, the column provides stability around a shifting spiral. This space was built around the circulation of people through it. 
On a busy day, people flow continuously along the ramps, viewing the exhibitions. The silhouettes of the visitors form a moving frenzy framed by the layers of curving ramps, like watching a film strip. Seeing others flowing through the space, we are aware of how it was built around our movement from within outward. As we move through the museum, below our feet is the terrazzo, a rock and laid floor. The stone chips are desert tones, tan, light brown. If you reach down, it's smooth and cool. The resin is a light color, similar to the paint tone in the whole space, so intersecting surfaces and materials seem to flow continuously. Embedded metal in the terrazzo floor outlines wide circles under our feet. They feel human scale that we're meant to fit here. They're four feet wide, contained within your wingspan as you hold your arms apart. The metal is zinc, and the subtle trace line is about the width of a pencil. The circles unfold around us in a radiating grid. The circles echo above in one of the side galleries, where four-foot-wide circular skylights bring natural light into the gallery. It feels like the trace circles below us have been punched through the ceiling. Beneath us, the metal circles continue along the spiraling ramp and almost everywhere we go. Even outside the museum, they're embedded in the sidewalk, pavement underfoot. They touch neighboring circles and form a stamped pattern down the block like an unfurled carpet. Everywhere, circles repeat above us and below us, inside and outside, creating a sense of harmony. Even the admissions desk, made of oak, is a portion of an arcing circle. The circle is completed outside the museum's walls, in the curving edge of the planters along Fifth Avenue. We move with the circle, in the tight revolving door and wider spirals through space. Materials repeat too, Handrails down the triangular staircase tucked behind the elevator are brass with a cool, smooth surface and a bright golden sheen, as are the wide, shallow bowl drinking fountains. The bronze medallion underfoot as we enter and exit the museum has a similar bright sheen. Every part of this building responds to and enhances dynamic forces taking us out of our normal operations and engaging our body and our perceptions. If we give ourselves up to the building, it lifts us, disorients us, grounds us, compresses us, embraces us, envelops us. Often we sense these forces simultaneously. 